What incredible worship. Let's give God a hand, okay? Wow. Wow. I was blown away. That is amazing. I'm excited to be up here today to get to share with you. Uh, the last time I was going to do this was two or three weeks ago in the middle of the ice storm, uh, and so we didn't do that. I did have the sermon ready, though, so today you're going to get two sermons. No, not really. Um, glad that you're joining us today online and glad that you're here today in person. So excited about this. Um, you know, I never did a lot of this in Fort Worth, where we were from, for th- about 30 years uh, on staff there. Always love to be able to do it, so thank you, Kevin, for giving me this opportunity. And I want to share with you today about a very, very important subject, which I think was already started at the beginning of the service, which is worship. And I just want to ask you a question. What is it that motivates you? What is it that gets you up in the morning, gladly gets you up in the morning? What is it that keeps you awake late at night? What is it that gives meaning and purpose to your day that keeps you going? It could easily be said, that's what worship is. For Israel, as we've been following the journey of Israel in the book of Nehemiah, for Israel, I believe that ideally, they would have said, it's the glory of God. They would have said, it's to receive the blessing of God. But unfortunately, as it is with human beings, we uh, sometimes get into a transactional relationship with God, and we tend to ask God for things, and as long as God's giving us those things, we're happy with God, and we believe He's happy with us. But that's not really what worship is all about. For Israel, because they believed they were the favored nation and they had that status, they always assumed the presence of God. But as we've seen leading up to Nehemiah, they had rebelled against the presence of God. They had not kept his commandments. They had not kept his covenant that Pastor Kevin shared with us this last week. They had not kept that covenant. So as a result of that, God had allowed them to receive his discipline and to go into a land of captivity. They'd been in Babylon, and then Persia took that over, and they had been there for 70-plus years, and by the time Nehemiah gets on the scene, it had been even longer than that. And I believe there in that land of captivity, as they were in exile, they began to miss the presence of God. And it said, it was prophesied in several places in the Old Testament that when they were in that land of captivity, that they would begin to desire God and to seek for Him and want to be with Him again. And that happened with several of those Old Testament prophets and then with Ezra and with Nehemiah, as we've seen. And so they began to desire that presence of God again. They began to seek His face and not just His hands that would work for them. They began to seek Him, God Himself, And so they went back to Jerusalem as we've been following the story of Nehemiah. When they went back to Jerusalem, they wanted to rebuild a wall because without a wall, you couldn't really worship God. But the wall, as Pastor Ricky shared with us a few weeks ago uh, 
in that famous sermon when we couldn't all meet as a church in person again, uh, as he shared with us, it wasn't just about rebuilding a wall. It was about rebuilding a people, but even more than that, it was about restoring the worship of God back to Israel. And so today, we understand that better than we did a year ago. A year ago, meeting in person, we kind of took that for granted. Today, we realize how sweet it is to be able to be in person again, to be able to worship God together again, and hopefully one of these days we'll be able to see each other's face again, right? Uh, That will happen. That will happen. God didn't reveal that to me. I just believe that will happen. Um, Maybe that's wishful thinking. Um, but, But the truth is, we desire to worship God. Israel, in their heart of hearts, desired to worship God. As Blaise Pascal said many years ago, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And this reality is really the driving force behind the book of Nehemiah, behind the actions of Nehemiah, behind the burden that God gave to Nehemiah when he was a cupbearer to the king and he asked for some time off to rebuild the wall, but really to restore the worship. It's the bigger story of Nehemiah, the spiritual restoration of the people. So I want us to think today about what worship looks like. Worship matters. It is so important. I think back on three of the four, or three of the five most transformative experiences of my life. They came in the context of worship. The first two, becoming a Christian when I was nine years old and God bringing me back when I was 22, and then getting married. Maybe I didn't know what worship was all about at that point. But the next three, when we moved to Houston, we were involved in a world missions conference that was really a worship conference. I started understanding what worship was all about. And, of course, worship is the... Uh, involved, so that made sense. The second time, we were uh, involved in Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch, and as we went to the Tomball Worship Gathering, we were very much uh, prayer gathering. We were very much inspired and and, uh, burdened by God for this, for this church to be here, and that happened as well. The other time was when I first went into the ministry, and it was at the end of a service, and I was in a church where they had an altar call, but it was in the context of worship that God called me into the ministry when I was 32 years old. And so worship is not only for God, but worship is so good for us. It's how God moves in our lives, and I'm sure you sense that as we worship God together during uh, the music that we were singing. So let's look today at Nehemiah 11 and 12. Uh, We won't look at it all, but we'll hit the high points. But I want you to see some things in these chapters that God impressed me with. First of all, in Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it reads like this. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem. The holy city while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. It calls Jerusalem there the holy city. It made me realize that the beginning point of worship 
is the focus on God. Worship begins with focus. Now, we kind of take that for granted. But really, if you think about what is written here, those three little words, the holy city, kind of grabbed hold of me this week. It's kind of odd, but that's kind of, I'm sure when you're studying the Bible, sometimes something will just jump out at you. And you start exploring, and I think, eh, the holy city, that's what Jerusalem's always called, right? Well, when you look it up, it's only called the holy city five times in the Old Testament. In all of the Old Testament, you love that, don't you, Diane? Okay. Uh, Five times. It's only called that six times in the New Testament, and most of that is at the end in the book of Revelation. It's an amazing thing that this common phrase is a very rare phrase, and I begin to think about that, is why was it called the Holy City? It was called the Holy City because God had chosen to put his name there. Now, we know that God is everywhere, and then God is in us by his Holy Spirit, but in a very specific, localized sense, God had chosen to put his name in Jerusalem at the temple, and he had told his people about that. This was actually revealed, in fact, when um, we got to, when you get to 2 Chronicles 7, verses 12 through 16, in that famous verse that says, and my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, that's really an answer to a prayer that Solomon had prayed to God. He had prayed when the temple was dedicated, Solomon's temple, this majestic place that God had revealed, that when it was dedicated, he asked God to hear all of the prayers that came from that place. And God's response was this. It says in verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 7, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I close the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to the prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. In other words, when they thought of Jerusalem and they thought of the temple, they thought of God. It was called the holy place because the Holy One was there. And so their focus was not on rebuilding the wall. Their focus was not just getting back to the capital city. Their focus was on God and on being near to Him. And you know, that's what worship is really all about. As one has said, and it's been repeated in many places, worship is what captures our mind's attention, our heart's affection, and our soul's ambition. It captures our mind's attention, our heart's affection, and our soul's ambition. Their attention really wasn't on Jerusalem. It was on God. It was called the holy city because that's where God, the holy one, was because God had chosen that place for his name. You remember the story in Daniel where he prayed toward Jerusalem, and that's kind of weird if you don't really understand the background of that. He was praying to God because God had promised that he would hear prayers that would be prayed back there to him. And so 
they were focused on God, and that's what worship is all about, is being focused on God and His Son, Jesus. We took a trip to Washington, D.C. many years ago, 2005, I'm not sure exactly when that was, but we took a trip to Washington, D.C., and I'll assure you, we didn't go to Washington, D.C. to see what the people were like. We didn't go to Washington, D.C. to see what the landscape was like. We didn't really care about all that. I mean, great, love people, love landscapes. We went there to see all of the monuments that were there that depicted our nation's history and the American way of life. We saw the Washington Monument. We saw the Lincoln Memorial. We went into the White House and saw that, which is a very symbolic place. But really, all of that was just symbolic of the American way of life. And it was the same for them. When they went back there to Jerusalem, it symbolized God. It was synonymous with God to them, so they wanted to be there. And they wanted to return to the worship of God. And Nehemiah and Ezra led them in that. Now, here's the really, uh, really neat thing about it, the really interesting thing about it. The other places in the Bible where the holy city is mentioned is in the book of Revelation, as I said. And four of the six times in the New Testament, it's in the book of Revelation. And here's what it says in Revelation 21. It says, John speaking, the apostle, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The new Jerusalem, the holy city today, is us, prepared like a bride right now, and one day coming down out of heaven to dwell on the earth with God forever. And you know what it says? It says that God will be with us forever because God wants to be with us. So our focus is on God's presence. We're not Israel. We're the new community of faith. Our focus is on the presence of God as we gather together as the bride of Christ. We worship God together right now. That's why we believe and have reaffirmed our vision for Bayou City Fellowship that we will be a community radically focused on Jesus and committed to passionately worshiping Him because He is our focus. He is the revelation of God the Father. He is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He is the Holy Spirit. He reveals to us God, and our focus is on Him. So when we worship, true worship is worshiping Him. It's worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice the second thing about this passage, though, is that worship not only involves focus, but worship also involves sacrifice. Sacrifice, uh, what a word, you know? Nobody likes to make sacrifices, right? Even for your kids. No, we do for our kids. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, it's, it's tough, though, because you know, I have to be honest about it. I'm kind of self-centered. So making a sacrifice means I kind of give up a little bit of myself when I do that. But this is the beautiful thing about worship. Worship involves me putting aside my agenda and focusing on God. 
It involves me putting aside my desires and being willing to serve the people that God loves and died for and laid down his life for. That's part of worship as well. We, we saw last week, as we saw chapter 10, if the various covenant renewals that they made, the various vows that they made, these were sacrifices. They made a vow to God that they would not intermarry. They made a vow that they wouldn't buy and sell on the Sabbath. And if you've been in business, especially retail business, that was a sacrifice, right? You understand that. They made a vow to give money to support worship. I mean, this is real money they gave, you know. It was a sacrifice to do that, to support the worship. And they made a vow to continue to worship God, to not miss those feast days, to not miss that regular gathering of God's people. They made those vows. And why did they do that? They did that because they loved God. But as I was thinking about this, you can worship God for all the bigness that he is. God is great, right? But there's that other little part of the children's prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Uh, We've got grandkids. And so, you know, uh, they've got better prayers than that, by the way. But I'm not sure there is a better prayer than that. Because the reality is, God is great, but the greatness of God alone would not inspire me to lay down my life for him. But when I understand how much God loved me as part of his nature of love, then we love God because he first loved us. You know, and love and worship go hand in hand. You really can't have one without the other. And so when we look at these sacrifices, we are willing to sacrifice for the sake of worship because God is worthy of it. But now he calls for a different kind of sacrifice. In those two little verses that I just read, the the different kind of sacrifice is the sacrifice of moving, of relocating. How many of y'all enjoy moving? Okay. Okay, Matt. Okay, that's one. Uh, but, But once you've moved a few times in your life, you may decide you don't enjoy that quite as much. Okay? Uh, we've only moved like five or six times. But I can tell you right now, when, when our friends in Fort Worth would ask us, why in the world would you leave Fort Worth, North Texas, by the way, it's not Dallas, I could get that. But if you, why would you leave Fort Worth to live in Houston? There is no good reason from that perspective. <laughs> but I can say now, not being politically correct, I really love the city of Houston. I really do. And I love Tomball even more. We live in Spring Branch. We drive up here three or four times a week, okay? We love this place, right? But even that wouldn't have been enough to do that. One reason, grandkids. Our grandkids, most of them were here. The other ones were in Baton Rouge, and so we figured we'll get closer to the ones in Baton Rouge. It won't be seven hours, it'll be four hours, and then we'll be with our other grandkids, and we'll get to see our family. Well, God has a wonderful way of working things out. I wouldn't say it always happens this way, but before we got here, after we made the decision, our daughter got here, And so we had two of our three kids and two of our grandkids, and then a year after we got here, the rest of them came over to Houston. And so now we've got, you've heard that story before probably, but they're all here now. But the thing is, we moved for a very good reason, because moving in and of itself is a big sacrifice, right? You couldn't even imagine what an ordeal it was. The longer you've lived in one place, the more junk you got, right? Right? unless you're one of those wonderful people that clean stuff out all the time. Um, 
but we might not be. Okay, so we try. But the thing is, they were asked to move to Houston, okay? I mean, I mean, they were asked to move to Jerusalem. And you would think on the surface, that's a great thing. But when you think about it, Jerusalem, it says in Lamentations that it was the city that was lonely, once filled with people, but now it was lonely. It says in Nehemiah 7, 4, that it was a city that was large and spacious, but not many people were there and few houses had been built. So it really wasn't because it was such a wonderful place. As we said, they were asked to move there by lottery, okay? Now, I'm old enough to have been in the first and only Vietnam War draft lottery. September the 1st, I mean, December the 1st, 1969, the Selective Service decided to have a lottery to draft young men to get into the army so they would serve in Vietnam. The Vietnam War was at its peak, and we all huddled around. I was going to Hardin-Simmons University at the time. I was a junior. You can do the math if you want to. And, uh, you know, I was a junior, and we were all huddled around that TV wanting to see whose number is going to get called first. The winning number, September the 14th. I was lottery pick 339. So if I went, almost every young man in America that was over 18 years old was going to go to the Vietnam War. Now, see, at that time, I didn't really realize the value of what was going on. All I knew is I was going to college to make sure I had my deferment from going, you know, to war. And uh, then when that came up, it was a matter of, well, God, I hope I don't have to go to war, you know, that kind of thing. That's a natural reason, obviously. I had friends that volunteered to go, and they are still my friends. They came back. That's an awesome thing. And many of you probably went to the Vietnam War, and if you did, as they say, thank you for your service, right? Because now I might look at it differently. I might volunteer. But the reality is this, is nobody really wants to enjoy something that they get drafted to do. Otherwise, they would have already signed up, right? Well, this says in verse 2 that the people blessed all of those who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. You see, they were drafted. The leaders had already planted their lives there because they knew leaders have got to lead the way. But the rest of them, one out of every ten families had to, by lot, decide they were going to live in Jerusalem. And they didn't do it begrudgingly. They did it because they volunteered. Once they were chosen, they voluntarily did that. They didn't dig in their heels and try to not do it. They were glad to do it. It was about attitude. And you see, this is the thing about it. Whenever we make a sacrifice for God, we make the sacrifice because we want to make the sacrifice, even though it's hard. And moving is one of the greatest ones. In the Bible, there are many that were asked to move. The story of Abraham, he went out to a land not knowing where he was going, uprooted his entire family. Moses had been in the land of Midian for 40 years as a shepherd, running from a prior mistake, a prior sin. And God called him to move to Egypt to lead the people of God out of Egypt and into the promised land, although he didn't quite make it to that one. But the most important one that ever moved, because God wanted him to, was Jesus, his son. Jesus left heaven's glory 
and came to this earth and lived among us to show us the glory of God. Was it a sacrifice? Yes. But was it a willing sacrifice? Absolutely. He came because he wanted to do his Father's will. He wanted to instill and establish the worship of God. He wanted, like Abraham and Moses and anyone who does that for God, he wanted to be near to God. Like the song that we sing sometimes says, I just want to be where you are. And they moved into Jerusalem to be near God so they could worship him. Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with me, then I don't want to go. We see other places where we see sacrifices that we are called to make in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Psalm 51.7 tells us that the sacrifice that God is well pleased with is a broken and a contrite heart. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that our praise is a sacrifice to God. Now, I thought a little bit about that. It's like, why is that a sacrifice? Because when you praise God, you get your mind off yourself. Our desire is to praise ourselves, or at least to get it, right? But when you praise God, you get your mind off yourself. As Kevin referenced last week, Romans 12:1, our bodies are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service, our reasonable service of worship. On a practical level, on a specific level, sometimes giving up your weekend to be in the place of worship is a sacrifice. Sometimes uh, you may even be asked to move closer to a place or closer to your church in order to make that sacrifice. Our son-in-law, Jake, who was a pastor over in Baton Rouge and is now down in Pearland with our daughter and grandkids, he used to say this to his congregation. He would say, when people would come and ask him, I'm not sure if I ought to live in that part of town or in this part of town, he would say, well, here's my advice to you. Find the church that God wants you to be part of and then start looking around close to the church. Because where you worship God and being involved in the worship of God matters more than the place that you live. It's a sacrifice that's worth making. So even though sacrifice, the moving is a sacrifice and it's disruptive, and he, he is worth it. Louis Palau just died a couple of weeks ago, international evangelist, if you've heard of him. Second only to Billy Graham in the number of lives probably that he's touched. He said this once. He said, don't pray for an easier life. Instead, pray to be a stronger man or woman of God. It's important to make those sacrifices for God. And yes, it will be tough. But it's worth it because he is worth it. Worship involves sacrifice. I love another thing about this is that worship is magnified with others. We certainly understand that now. But the worship of God is great when other people are around to worship God with you. Now, I love to worship God on my own. I do. When we first got here, I had a lot of time on my hands. I listened to a lot of worship videos. And I, I love, love, love doing that. But there is nothing like what we experienced this morning when all of the people of God are together singing, hopefully louder than I was, because I was singing pretty loud, uh, and just, just worshiping God together. What an amazing thing. The city that had few people in it and no houses had built in it yet, that's not the way God wants it. God wants his people to be together so that he 
can worship with us. You see, God wants to be with us. You see that all the way from the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. He walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He walked with Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, and he was not because God took him. He walked with Noah. He dwelt among the people of Israel in first a tabernacle and then in a permanent temple, seemed to be at the time. And then he now worships with us. His new Jerusalem, his bride, and God is here with us now. So it's important to worship God together corporately because God wants to be with us collectively. Also, God's people want to be with God's people, right? We understand that now a lot better than we did before. We loved each other before, but now getting to see each other again, it's so wonderful to have those, see those conversations happen and, and to actually talk to people face to face. But it's so wonderful to worship God together because I know if you're worshiping God that your love is the same love that I've got. We have a mutual love for God and we worship Him together. So being together really matters. You know, and the other thing about worship when we're together is worship in community fortifies us. It stirs our heart in a way that leaves us stronger for the week ahead when we worship God together. Derek Kidner, who wrote a commentary on Nehemiah in the Tyndale series, he said it like this, The Lord went from Gethsemane fortified not only by prayer, but think about this, but by a ceremonial meal and corporate singing, engaging his spirit, his body, and his senses. I think it's important that those all go together. The upper room experience, we will celebrate communion today. The upper room experience, Jesus was fortified by community. He earnestly desired to eat that supper with them. And then he was fortified by that singing that they sang as they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then he prayed in the garden. And it got him ready for the week, for the day ahead, when he would give up his life for us on the cross. So worship is magnified when we worship him together. And then last, worship includes celebration. We see this at the end of chapter 12, when they all decide it's time to dedicate the wall. This wall that's been built in 52 days, it was miraculous. It was a lot of hard work, even though it was miraculous. God was in it, but now it was time to celebrate. I hope you celebrate well. But I especially hope that you celebrate the works of God and the presence of God in your life well. Because God loves that. It tells us in Psalms that God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. He loves that kind of celebration. It tells us in chapter 12, verses 27 and following. It says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites wherever they lived, and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers gathered from the region around Jerusalem, from the settlements of the da 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 and uh, for they had built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. After the priests and Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the city gates, and the wall. 
Worship involves celebration. It includes celebration. But it also calls for preparation. We were thinking about that this morning in our prayer time before the service started. That we have to prepare our hearts to be able to worship God fully. You know, I, I'm as guilty as anybody else. I come on Sunday, I'm thinking about all the stuff i got to do to get ready for the service and make sure all the bases are covered and all those kind of things. You come, you, you, know, you get ready, you come and make sure the kids are dropped off if you have kids and make sure everything's just right. And uh, as we jokingly say, but it's probably true, there's more arguments on the way to church than any other time in a married life, right? Because everybody's getting ready, hustling and bustling and all this kind of stuff. And then you finally get there and you say, okay, let's worship God. Okay, (laughs) you know, no, it might require a little bit of preparation if you want to fully engage the spirit, the body, and the senses. That's what they did. You notice that they brought the priests and the Levites that lived around Jerusalem in the surrounding areas. They, I didn't read the names because I didn't want to confuse y'all, and I didn't want to look stupid, Um, but, but the reality is they brought all of them together. To assemble, but you know, I mean, I'm just thinking they probably rehearsed when they got together to sing. These were choirs, they were going to sing, but there were musical instruments, and so they wanted to have this thing done right. And then it says that they not only did the practical side of it, but they did the spiritual side of it, which might even be more practical. It said the priests and the Levites purified themselves, they purified the people and they purified the gates. They were going to be walking through those gates. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord, and it was talking about the gates of Jerusalem. They were going to walk through those gates. Those had to be purified. Those priests and Levites that were going to lead the worship, they had to be purified. But the people had to be purified. Now, how did that happen? They had special anointing oil that they used, and sometimes they used blood. They did it a couple of different ways. It doesn't matter how they did it. The point is, when they're purifying themselves, they're saying, we are sinners, we have sinned, we want to confess that sin, we want to be purified from that so that our hearts are ready to worship God. It's just, the reality is, we never need more of God. We've got all of God that we need. He needs more of us. As long as I'm holding on to sin, there's a pocket of sin in my life That's an area he can't inhabit. That's an area that he can't be in, okay? And so we purify ourselves before we get to the church service, before we get to worship. We purify ourselves first so that we can truly worship God in spirit and in truth. We can worship him wholeheartedly. That's what he calls for. And when we do that, then it does something for us as well. Paul David Tripp said it like this. Corporate worship is designed to lift up your Lord in such a way that he captures the deepest love, hope, and joy of your heart. It lifts him up in such a way that it captures your deepest love, joy, and hope of the heart. Worshiping God transforms us, and so we need to be prepared for it. But when we worship God, it calls for physical demonstration. This is so important. We don't just kind of meekly worship God. We worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, just as we love Him. 
And so because they had rebuilt these walls in this miraculous 52 days, and they knew it was because the good hand of God was with them, as Nehemiah would say, because of that, they wanted to worship God by first walking along the walls and then going down into the temple area. By the way, it was interesting that these are the very walls that Geshem the Arab, one of the enemies of Nehemiah, had said, you know, even if a fox jumps on that wall, it'll fall down. Now we had two large choirs that walked along in the entirety of the city walls before they went down into the temple area. It says it like this in verse 31 of chapter 12. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall, and I appointed two large processions that gave thanks. One went to the right on the wall toward the dung gate. That one was led by Ezra. And then it says in verse 38, the second Thanksgiving procession went to the left, and I followed it with half of the people along the top of the wall, past the Tower of the Ovens to the broad wall above the Ephraim gate. And then it tells us that the two Thanksgiving processions stood in the house of God. So did I, and half of the officials accompanying me, as well as the priests. Then the singer sang with Jezrehiah as the leader. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. What an amazing thing. You see, they all got involved in this. Everyone was involved in worship. Some people say, I know people in my family that say, well, I can't sing, so, you know, I'll just, I'll observe. And I'm worshiping God in my heart. Let me tell you, you know, the joke, God loves a joyful noise. No, I mean, it's not a joyful noise to him. It's music to his ears. When we all worship God together, it's very important to God that we all are involved in the message. It's very important to God that we're all involved in the response time at the end of the message. Because that is all what worship is about. You see, everyone got involved. Ezra led one procession. And here's the interesting thing. Nehemiah was just one of the guys in the other procession. He didn't have to lead the way. He never did, did he? Because he was just like a layman, right? But this is what's so cool about it. They all worship God, whether they were leaders, whether they were just the people, or whether they were the priests and Levites. They all worship God. Everyone was involved. And, you know, they were, as I would say, they were loud and proud about it. Just like we would be at a football game when you're pulling for your favorite team. We would be loud and proud about that. We're glad to do this. And that's what they did together. It culminated in the temple with musical instruments, loud singing, and sacrifices given for the people. And it says the reason is because God inspired this worship. He had given them great joy. If you're having a difficult time worshiping God from the heart, just begin to reflect the things that God's done for you just this week. But if you want to get bigger than that, think about what God's done for you in the big scheme of life and all of the things that you could think of about where you could be if this hadn't happened and what you could have if God hadn't done this and what God's done for you and how we're all here today because God has preserved our lives even though a disease like COVID has been going on for over a year. If that doesn't provoke, evoke worship in your heart, then 
I'm not sure you're thinking about it very deeply. Because when I think about it deeply, it moves me. It inspires me. God inspires this worship. And then the last thing I see here about the celebration of worship that they had, it was a testimony to God. It says that that kind of worship is a testimony because it was heard far away. And this is what we are called to do as God's people. We are to worship God so loudly, so celebratively, so wholeheartedly that when people walk into this room and they are in the midst of our singing, they're in the midst of our response time, they feel the presence of God. That's what worship does, is as we worship corporately, it magnifies God so that people's hearts are stirred. And if he is lifted up, he will draw all men to him. That's what he calls us to do. Just one quick question about that. Are we willing to celebrate, or I think to myself, sometimes I'd rather just complain or be indifferent. Are we willing to celebrate the goodness of God in our lives? Are we willing to make that effort to think about it? Are we willing to give ourselves full, fully and wholeheartedly to Him, to worship Him? That kind of worship, we won't read the verses, but that kind of worship should be ongoing. That's what we should do week in and week out. That's what we should do daily on an individual basis, but we should do that week in and week out. That's why, as we saw last week and at the end of this chapter, there's strong command or encouragement to support the work of the worship of God. We should continue to do that. It's not just entertainment. What it is, it's worship leadership into the very throne room of God. We experienced that this morning. That's what God calls us to do every week. But for that to happen, there has to be support. And so let me encourage you to support that kind of worship. So let me ask you today, how would you rate your worship? How would you rate your worship? Who are you focused on? Are you focused on any number of things? Are you looking at your watch, when's this going to be over so I can do what I want to do? I doubt that. You're here because you want to be here. But there's always that temptation to make your focus something else besides God. God is worth the worship. He is our focus. And we need that constant reminder that He is worthy of that. How would you rate your worship in terms of how well you worship God? I don't mean how good you sing or you know, how, how well you read Scripture or any of those things. I mean, is your heart really in it? Do you come ready to do that? Are you ready to do it? The question is, are we focused on Him? Are we willing to make sacrifices? Are we willing to be present and involved? Is worship a priority for our lives? That's what God desires, that God wants to do for us as we worship Him, is to transform us into His image. Are you willing to do that today? That's what this calls for. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your love for us, that You would reveal Yourself to us, and Lord, that in revealing Yourself to us, Lord, that You would draw us to Yourself. 
Lord, none of us are here by accident. Lord, you have been wooing us and you've been drawing us in so many ways so that we could see you. We could see you, Lord, as the one who is worthy of all of our devotion. We could see you, Lord, as the one who would fill that vacuum that you have placed within us that only you can fill and only you can satisfy. Lord, I pray today for all of us who are here today that we be willing to make those commitments to sacrifice for your worship because you are worth it, Lord. That we be willing to orient our lives around you and that you would be the center of our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to the earth and died for us and rose again, that we could have a radical focus on you and that that would change everything about us. Help us to line up with you, Lord Jesus, because of that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.